Hello, I'm Brooke Johnson. Welcome to my father's podcast. For this week's message, or any of the messages in our archive, subscribe for free on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Bethel Christian Fellowship is a church that relies on the support of its community. We consider you a part of that community, and we would love for you to participate in our financial life. You can do that at our website at drcraigjohnson.org. Whether you're new to this space or a regular pod listener, we're glad you're here. We believe that this message will bring you hope, encouragement, and guidance. God bless you. Good morning. Could we put our hands together and greet our streaming family? Welcome. Welcome. It is Advent season and we are celebrating the great you catastrophe, the greatest news of all time that God became flesh and struck a tent in human flesh and dwelt among us to the end that he might die for us, redeem us. And today we're going to be looking at that fact. We're going to look at a Macedonian moment, God with us. Now you've heard the text all your life, but let me read it. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 20. But after he had considered this, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Emmanuel, God with us, is the message of Christmas. What's Christmas all about? Whether you're a little child or whether you're aged in the things of God, we're going to talk about the greatest news that's ever been heard, and we're going to be overwhelmed again in Matthew 22, 41 to 46. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. And he said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Holy Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? And no one could say a word in reply. And from that day, no one dared ask him any more questions. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.8, Remember, Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. Revelation 22.16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. Jesus said, I am the root and the offspring of David. I'm David's creator and I'm David's son. Well, how do you put those things together? That's our title today. Emmanuel, God with us. The Bible tells a simple story. God created us in perfection, in perfect union with him. But through a misuse of this good thing called freedom, there was a monkey wrench placed in the system and a great gap and chasm between God and his man. And God undertook the greatest plan of love that one could conceive of. 
in order to bring a cross that became a bridge that would reunite that breach and bring us back into union. But it was a complex and deep reality. Jesus Christ, our Lord. We, we ask, what is Christmas? And we see the toys and we see Santa Claus and we love our Christmas songs. And, and yet all of it can be reduced down to the greatest reality in human history. Jesus spoke of it when he dealt with the religious leaders of his day. He said, who is the Messiah? And the Messiah, they agreed, was the son of David. The Messiah would be uh, an individual who would be of the lineage and flesh of David. And then the Lord Jesus says, well, I like that designation, son of David, and you leaders think I'm unworthy to bear it, but actually that name isn't enough to describe who I am. Jesus said, I'm not just the offspring of David, and I am. And by the way, they could check the genealogical records at the temple, and they knew Jesus was of the tribe and lineage of David. They knew he came from Judah, because if they found out he wasn't, they would have exposed him as such. So he was of the flesh and lineage of David legally through his mother, and, and uh, legally through his father, and actually through his mother. So Jesus said, I am the son of David. You won't grant me that title. You don't believe I'm worthy of that title. But actually, why is it that you do not read the scriptures and understand them? Psalm 110, the most quoted messianic scripture from the Psalms, identifies the Messiah. And verse 1 of Psalm 110 says, we're, we're allowed to eavesdrop into the Godhead and to hear a discussion in the Holy Trinity. And God the Father says to God the Son, the Messiah, he says, you are David's Lord. The Messiah isn't just a man after the flesh of David. That is true. He is the Son of David. But we find out Jesus says, but he is the Son of God as well. He is the divine Messiah. In Psalm 110, we have the whole gospel. We have the Holy Trinity. We have the Father who by the Holy Spirit is speaking to the Messiah and he calls Messiah David's Lord. And so Jesus asked the religious leaders, how is it that the Messiah could both be the creator of David and the offspring of David? And they durst not ask him any more questions. Now, he doesn't resolve it. He lays it out, and he leaves it there. But he says, son of David is not an exalted enough title for me. Yes, I am of David's flesh, but I am the root of David. I am his creator. I am the Messiah who is David's Lord. And one verse, Psalm 110 verse 1, records the Father saying of the Son, sit at my right hand in the place of equal dignity and honor to me, and I will make your enemies lay at your feet. Psalm 110 presents the Messiah as the eternal king. Yes, but verse 4 says he is also a priest 
eternally after the order of Melchizedek. He's a rare king priest. Now, this is the missing piece that our Jewish brethren did not see and would not accept. They wanted Messiah as a king. They wanted him to kick the butt of all oppressors and restore them to a place of geographical and political prominence, but they were blind to the priestly office. They were, in fact, were offended when the Messiah inferred that he was a divine priest. Because in the Old Testament, a king could never hold the role of a priest. In fact, Saul lost his kingdom doing a priestly act. Uzziah was smitten with leprosy when he, as a king, tried to offer incense in a priestly office. You see, the office of king and the office of priest were always separated, except in a man named Benaiah, who we've been studying in Second Chronicles chapter 11. Remember the bodyguard of David's great Cherethites and Pelethites, the greatest mighty man, in my opinion, that had an intimate access. He was the head of David's secret service. His name was Benaiah, and he's the only man in the Bible who was a priest who became a warrior. Until we get to Psalm 110, and until we talk about the Messiah. The Messiah, all of it is there in Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in the entire New Testament, over 21 times. Why? Because you have it all there. You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You have his descent in his priestly office as he assumes human flesh. He strikes a tent, John 1.14. He, he, he struck a tent in human flesh and, and, and tabernacled among us. Who? God, very God. But he leaves them with this conundrum he doesn't resolve. How can one person have two natures? How can you unite two natures, one divine, one human, in one person? I, I, I don't know. But he goes, well, it's right there in, in your scriptures. He's a king. He's a priest. He's a judge. He is going to rule the earth unopposed. And did you know, now Jesus in the last week of his life is stacking up a blasphemy charge. He's running head first into it. This isn't by accident. He's pressing the religious leaders. He's giving them one more opportunity to acknowledge his identity. Not only is he the son of David, but he is the son of God. Now, if God became incarnate, we would expect him to be sinless. We would expect him to be holy. We would expect his words to be the greatest words ever spoken. We would expect him to exert profound power over human personality. We would even expect him to perform supernatural deeds. This, and we'd expect him to manifest the love of God. But you see, the world has fallen. The human race, they're sinners in word, thought, and deed. There's an impassable gulf between fallen man and a thrice holy God. But the Son says, I will assume. I have a divine what? I'm going to assume a human what? I am going to become incarnate. Not only did God write the story of the universe, but he's going to write himself in to the story as the primary character who is going to assume humanity, the priestly mantle, 
always eternally a king, but an eternal priest who will also offer himself. All of it is in Psalm 110. He descends and then he dies as not only the priest, he offers himself on the altar as the blood sacrifice in order to redeem fallen man. This is great news. This is news beyond conception. Born a little baby thing that makes a woman cry, but he was only born in order that he could die. The priest offering himself on the very altar of the cross. Love beyond reason. Sacred blood so holy that a drop of it could redeem all the sacrifices, sacrifices that had ever been made in the history of the world, written as checks that had to be made good. He made them good. Advent, we celebrate this very reality of incarnation. What does incarnatio mean? It means enfleshment. So the Messiah was the son of David. He was going to be of the physical lineage of David. Yet Jesus considered that designation partial and inadequate. So rather than the title son of David being too great for Jesus, as the Jewish leaders contended, it was much too limited. According to Jesus, the Messiah had a claim to greatness that exceeded his physical, literal descent from David. And he quotes Psalm 110.1. God the Father... The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus says if the Messiah was no more than a a man, a human son of David, then how does David by the Holy Spirit call Messiah David's Lord? So the son of David must also be the son of God, and he sits down at the right hand of the Father, and at his trial they ask him, I adjure you by God, are you the Messiah? And he says, yes, I am. And he quotes Daniel 7.13, and he says, In my vision of the night I looked, and behold, before me there was one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. Jesus said, I am the Messiah, and you will see me on the throne of the glory of the Father coming in the clouds of magnificence. And they ripped the high priest robes because they believed that he was committing blasphemy because being a man, he made himself equal to God. They didn't mishear him in John 8, 58. He said, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to stone him. They didn't misunderstand his inference. You're not even 50 years old. How how can you say you've seen Abraham? He said, not only that I see Abraham, but I am. Exodus 3, 14. In John 10, 31, he says, I and the Father, we are one. And they picked up stones to stone him. Jesus' self-image was very high. (laughs) He says, the son of David is the designation of my flesh. It's a good title, but it's not big enough. Because how is it that the Messiah is a is the Lord of David. 
How can I be David's creator and David's son? Hmm. I'll leave that for you to meditate on and chew on in your rabbinic process because that's what rabbis did. They asked questions, then they answered questions, then they asked more questions. And remember Jesus at 12 was found in the temple asking questions and answering questions, and they were so amazed at his answers, I should say so, because he is God incarnate, redeemer, and creator of the universe. He gave the Ten Commandments. I think he's up on properly interpreting them. You know, they're constantly trying to trump him. They ask him in Matthew chapter 22 and Mark chapter 12, they ask him, you know, what's the greatest commandment? You remember how many commandments God gave? Ten. What did they wind up with in a few years? 613. I gave 10, you wind up with 613, 365 negative, 248 positive, and they've, they've, just, they've just created more weight. And then they're starting to judge all these 613 by how, which ones are weightier than the others. And of course they come to Jesus and they say, hey, what's the greatest commandment, man? I mean, what's your list? And Jesus said, Let me summarize the whole thing. Vertically love God with all your heart and soul and strength. Horizontally love one another. There you go. They all hang right there. But that's not the question you should be interested in, Jesus is inferring. He said, you are sinners and you cannot keep any law God gives. He gives you ten, you defile them and you multiply them. You need a savior. You are the problem. You need a sin offering. Remember the temple system, sin offering, trespass offering, the burnt offering, the peace offering, the meal offering. I'm all of those wrapped together. I wrote the story and I've written myself in. Here I am. I gave you the Ten Commandments. Worship me. I am your sin offering. Lay your hand by faith upon my head. You need a Savior. And all they heard was blasphemy. And this is the charge he was crucified on. But he was born to die. Do you understand? He became incarnate to fulfill his priestly mandate and his kingly mandate and his judge's mandate, and he will reign forever and ever and ever and ever. And that's what the little baby in the manger represents, the God-man, the fulfillment of every messianic hope to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and every archetypic image, every culture, everywhere you ever look in human life, you see all these images swelling together in the coral. Blessing. The incarnation. There he is. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the King of glory. He is all of these things blended together in human flesh. Unbelievable. Never sinned in word, thought, or deed. Holy. 
precious. And when they go to stone him, he says, oh, for which of my good works are you killing me? Can any of you convince me of any sin I've ever committed? Kill me for that. Oh, you can't? Hmm. A little sarcastic. When you're the God man, you get some privileges. I'm not the baby Jesus anymore, you know. Heals the sick. He raises the dead. He heals the blind, the lame. He brings every sign no one had ever seen. But everything he did and all the healings and all the deliverances were simply things he did on the way to his death for you. Because he will pay the price and he will meet the penalty and his precious blood must be shed. It wasn't plan B. Oh no, what are we going to do now? They're beating me. That was plan A. And all the scriptures fulfilled in this one life. That's Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us, is. Whew. Not another avatar, not another prophet restating the Tao, giving you more examples of the different facets of wisdom, or laying down a new rap, or putting a new emphasis, or trying to get you to fall in love with your own image as narcissist, or you getting that. He did not come to do anything but to be the perfect sacrificial lamb. And he offers himself as the great high priest. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Oh, this is good news. You are his beloved on whom his favor rests. You're not what you can do. Don't find your identity. Who am I? Who am I? I am what I can do. Well, when you can no longer do what you used to be able to do, then I guess you're worthless. So you're not what you can do. That's not where identity is found. You're not what you have because when you no longer have what you had, like youth, gold, good teeth, then I guess you're worthless. You're not what other people think about you because if they think negative things about you, I guess you're nobody. But you see, but the answer is, who am I? Is I am the beloved of the Lord on whom his favor rests. He has set his love upon me, period. He has set his own life. He's put my life above his own. If you ever doubt your value, look at his cross. That's what he thinks about you. You know, when I behold him, I just can't, I can't, when I watch Jesus of Nazareth or when I watch The Chosen or when I watch The Passion, when you try to wrap your mind around, you can't. He didn't resolve. He didn't untie the knot. He didn't give a mental picture of the incarnation. He just left them with the pieces and said, work on that for the rest of your life. So the Messiah is David's son. We know that. But he, by the Holy Spirit, David prophesies 
and says the Messiah is his Lord. So how can the Messiah be his son and his Lord? Good question. And that should occupy you for the rest of your life. Try and understand that you may lose your mind, deny it, you lose your soul. We can't unscrew the unscrutable. Well, you can't ever unscrew the unscrutable, so wake up and smell the Bible. If you were inventing this, C.S. Lewis said, if we're inventing this out of whole cloth, this is not the story you come up with. There are more things that are plain than true, and there are more things that are true and plain. True than plain. So someone can give you a simplistic idea about God, and it's simple, but it's not true. But they can give you a complex one. It's true, but it's not simple. So don't feel bad because you know very little of anything anyway. Hate to break it to you. Ask your family. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would heal his sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy was heaven's perfect lamb and the sleeping child you're holding is the great I am? Mm. Watch out. Yeah, but that doesn't make you. Yeah, I know. I know. That's why... Mystery is the fuel of worship. That's why people worshiped who saw him. He says, anyone who is of the truth hears my voice. He was primarily rejected and cursed. And he said, if you fall on this stone, you will be broken. But if it falls on you, it will grind you to powder. Everyone who is of the truth hears his voice. And as soon as you see him and you catch a glimpse of him, well, you may know all about him, but you haven't seen him. Yeah, no, you haven't. You haven't caught a glimpse. You know, I saw an image this week. I was studying the tabernacle. And, and there are brethren who live in the outer court of the tabernacle. And they're like artists. And they're drawing intimate, detailed, perfect pictures of the holy place and the holy of holies where they've never been. And they can study everything you could possibly know of the details of the tabernacle in the holy place. And they even have eyewitness testimony of priests that have been in there that talk to them and they still are in the holy place and they've lived in the holy place and they've never gone through the veil. It's impressive. You can play the paper chase and you actually get degrees that you earned in the outer court. And everything technically you're saying is true but you've never, you've never been in love. You study love. You're a PhD at Oxford. You've got a D fill in love. You're an expert on all the movies, the in love movies, but you've never been in love. I'm sorry. You know, it all falls woefully low, doesn't it? Living in the outer court, and telling everybody the truth about the holy place and the holy of holies, but you've never been there. I was in Egypt, and I was at, at the evening show, and you're sitting in pitch black, and the music begins to swell, 
And they go, all things fear time, but time fears the pyramids. Boom, when the light goes up. Hello. It's hard to miss that moment. And it's hard to describe it right now when you're actually sitting there in a little deck chair, <laughs> pitch dark, and the Great Pyramid of Giza. You know, it's, it's hard to describe that to someone. It's big, and it's a lot of stones, and it's like some of us are better than others at describing things. You know, you, there's different ways that you can... Um, you can, you can meet a young lady and you can describe her. You can write to your parents, oh, she's lovely and she's pretty and she's cute and she's a little dimple and oh, you're wonderful and she's patient and she's kind. That's and you just go on and on and on descriptively or denotatively. You you can take her and go here, mom and dad, there she is. That's a little bit. That's a fuller picture than all the billions of descriptors that you could use. You point to her. John 14, 9, Jesus said to Thomas, Thomas, have you, have you been so long with me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen how I am, how I act in every situation, you have seen how the Father acts and is. In fact, I don't even say anything that he doesn't tell me to say, and I don't ever do anything that he doesn't show me to do. So, ta-da. <laughs> Let's kill him. How can we kill him quicker? Let's have the Romans do it so we can torture him slowly came into his own and his own received him not. He made the world and was in the world, but the world did not recognize him, John chapter 1. But he struck a tent in human flesh and tabernacled with us. That's the good news. That's Christmas. That's what we're celebrating. Don't lose sight. It's him. And I just have been worshiping him all week. And, you know, worship isn't, you know, two hymns and a her. You know what I mean? It's catching a glimpse of him again. How beautiful he is. I watched Jesus of Nazareth with Robert Powell thousands of times. But the more I study the word and the more I realize who he is, the more I replay those scenes, the tears, I start realizing that's who he is. That is the one who is rebuking the self-righteous and saving miserable sinners. Never speaks a negative word to a bruised reed. He will not quench dimly burning, barely burning flax. He will not break a bruised reed. He repairs always, restores always, is always reaching out to redeem, to restore. I don't know how you know him, but he's a savior, this king, priest, judge. <laughs> and he is crazy about you. He's so into you. He's like, Remember, you're one of his pearls.
pearls have no utility at all. You can't do a thing with them except adore them. Look at them. <gasps> Look at the pearl. Look, you can only put it in a setting that will allow other people to see it. Look at how it diffuses the light. Look at my daughter Gretchen. Look at Gretchen. Look at how cute she is. Now, come on, you know, you go and have your kids. You know exactly what I'm You got grandkids. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, look at a thousand pictures. My daughter Brooke has 10,000 pictures of her three nephews. Oh, four now. Four nephews. And they're all coming in. We have a tote board at the house. Ten days and three hours, there, that gaggle of babies are coming through the front door. She's just an aunt. And she can't not highlight those pearls 24 hours a day. And I remember when my little girl, Brookie, came out, that little pearl. Mm-hmm. Six boys, that's good. But that little girl comes out. Mm-hmm. She knows she's the pearl. And she points that out quite frequently. So sorry. Daddy's pearl. When you meet him, you fall in love with him. You will. It'll happen. He's just so wonderful. But it's like osmosis, the brother Moses. It's caught, not taught. You catch him. In an off-guarded moment, at your darkest place, and he extends mercy. When he gives you the priestly scepter instead of the sword, when you should have your hand cut off and he touches you and heals that, it's, it's love beyond reason. It's mercy instead of justice. And then he takes your breath away. When they said preaching the gospel is just one beggar showing another beggar where he found bread, that's all this is. That's all this is. Just every revival is a fresh glimpse of him. It's not 14 principial things that you do that trigger an awakening. Oh, my God. And even he, on the right hand of the Father, goes, Oh, no. To hymns and a her, and then leans slightly against Catherine Coleman's pulpit, and maybe the anointing will jump on you. Oh, there, a liver quiver. Beloved, you can't manage him. You can't control him. You can't manipulate him through prayer. Prayer is not a means by which we get our will done in heaven. It's a means by which he gets his will done on earth. It's all about him. And there's just something when we fall in love with him again, just yet again, everything, just we just get giddy, and everything fall, falls into place and has its proper proportion. And he did all of that so that he can play with you for eternity. It's like, can we go to the park and play? Are you going to avert your eyes, look down and start praying and crying and weeping again? Oh, no. Can we just can we go to the park and play? Remember when Arwen wanted to go to the park? Go to the park. We go to the park. Can we go to the park? Well, that's undignified to think of the God man going, can we go to the park? Can we go to the can we dispense with all this and just cut to the chase and have fun forever? No, oh you want to do religious things. Oh gosh. Then he's got to go to all these conferences and show up. (laughs) Two or more are gathered in my name. I guess I've got to go. But he'll take Dennis with him so he can have some fun, you know. 
bring Craig with me. Merry Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. What a title. Can you imagine? Mommy holding that baby. Lord have mercy. It's love beyond reason, beloved. But the good news is, I just pray that you would be able to receive not just his kingly presence and anointing, but that you could also receive his priestly touch, O oh, beloved. See, they could see he was a king that would deliver them and restore their political status quo, but they could they were blind to his priestly office after the order of Melchizedek. They stumbled at his priestly sacrifice. But you don't need to stumble. The eternal king, the eternal priest, whoever lives to make intercession at the right hand of the Father. Oh my. Are you the Messiah? We adjure thee by God. He said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory, seated at the right hand. Oh boy. And they rend their garments. I think so. Rend away. But he is Lord. He's not nervous. He's not running the universe as a chain-smoking chihuahua. Huh? Are we into plan B now? What happened? What did they do? <laughs> the king priest has everything well in hand, beloved, in your life too. But you see, he's calling us in from the outer court where we've been drawing pictures of the holy place and the holy of holies and we've been doing lectures in the holy place and the holy of holies, but we've never been to the holy place and the holy of holies. To your right is the table of the showbread. It's like, okay. <laughs> you can accurately represent things you've never seen. I remember Pastor Rick David used to say, you know, when you take people to the Grand Canyon, you don't have to have signs saying, in 30 feet, prepare to be overwhelmed. <laughs> Just let them off the bus. <laughs> the event is enough. <laughs> you know what I mean? In 40 feet. Every revival is a new glimpse of him, the God-man. So he tells the Pharisees, he goes, you know, you don't want me to have the son of David title. You think I'm not worthy of it. It's not enough for me. I'm the son of David, and I'm the son of God. I'm David's creator, and I am his son. Figure that out. Council of Chalcedon, 451 AD. They'll work on that a little bit more than you guys. <laughs> he didn't resolve the tension. He never does. Have you noticed that? He brings us right to the tension, and then he leaves us and says, Trust me, you know, <laughs> be seeing you. <laughs> it was like, don't ascend now where he's leaving. Remember I told the disciples were teenagers. These are not guys in their 40s. It's not James Francisco or whatever his name. <laughs> I would thought they were 40. Remember the Jesus film where the John the Baptist guy was, bless it all to me. He's like 50 years old with a bad wig. And it's like, no, uh, no. Uh. Well, he's ascending 
to heaven and he's leaving the world in the hands of guys that are trying to figure out the prophetic chart. Is it at this time that I become the president and he's the vice president? He's, his feet are up, you know. Oh, Lord. He's got a lot more confidence than I do in his people. He's got a lot more confidence in me than I have in me. Isn't he wonderful? So you see, we'll end where we began. Remember Benaiah, David's bodyguard. The only priest who became a warrior. John the Baptist was a priest who became a prophet, and Jeremiah was a priest that became a prophet. Ezekiel was a priest that became a prophet, but only Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada from Kabzeel, was a priest who became a warrior, a warrior priest. Melchizedek in Genesis 14 shows up the king priest. A thousand years later, he's brought up in Psalm 110, 1, verse 4. And a thousand years later in Hebrews chapter 7, the author of Hebrews brings this all together, and he demonstrates the beauty and the logic of the incarnation. The eternal king, who is an eternal priest, incarnate in human flesh. He wrote the story, and he wrote himself in as the answer. And we are called to bear the mantle of the sword and the scepter. We must be warrior priests and warrior priestesses. And all of his followers in Psalm 110 are soldier priests who are willing in the day of his power, who have the invigorating effect of dew in the morning over everyone they touch. Multitude without number. His soldier priests. There's the balance head and heart, meal and oil, word and spirit. That's what this pulpit represents. This was Catherine Coleman's pulpit. This was also Dr. John Warwick Montgomery's pulpit from whence he did his uh, Sensible Christianity series, and this was Walter Martin's pulpit from which he did all his tapes in the cults and the occult. Head and heart, meal and oil, word and spirit, gotta have them both. Don't be in the ditch or be a king without a priest. Don't be a priest without kingship. Be in the middle of the road, a warring warrior priest, a soldier priest. That's Benaiah, and that is the incarnate redeemer of the world. Happy Christmas. Isn't he wonderful? Pearls have no utility at all. They're just to be looked at. And he's our pearl, and we're his pearl. And all he does is just hold you up to the light and go, oh, look at, look at, look at Dennis. Look, 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 look. Those of you with grandkids know what I'm talking about. Oh, here's another picture to bore you completely to death. Look at this one. Isn't that cute? Oh, wait a minute. This shows the dimple. It's like, oh, oh, you're smitten and afflicted with a grandbaby. Why, it's hopeless. <laughs> yes, it is. And now, if you would look at this, you know, it's on my shirt. Look. The dimple is right. Oh, Lord. This is what he does with you. That's all he does, little pearl. See, this is the time when Jesus is, is it's time for placement. It's taken your whole life, little mollusk, to take 
the painful, hurtful things that went into your mantle that you've been covering with Nakur, and over time, you haven't noticed it because you've just been doing time. Let me see, how long is this a prison sentence? But you've been covering with Nakur all those difficulties, and now, as when you haven't been looking, a pearl. Your pain is going to bring pleasure to somebody else. And Jesus knows just when to bring you up from the bottom. One out of 10,000 oysters at pearls. It takes 100,000 to make one string. And these aren't cultivated man-made pearls that he's bringing out in the body of Christ right now. These are natural pearls. These aren't man-made. You know the difference between man-made pearl. Every pearl you see is a cultivated man-made pearl in pearl beds. They inject the problem, and then they take advantage, and they use the mollusk or the oyster to cover with nacre, and they manipulate that, and those are the perfect Jackie Kennedy pearls that you see that you've been deceived into thinking are God-made pearls. The God-made pearls are abnormal. They're a little bit wonky looking. They're different colors. You cannot manage and control. They're, they're black ones and they're pink ones. I had a friend. It takes 100,000 oysters to make one strand of natural pearls. One set goes for 130 million I saw the other day. Call Elon Musk. Gretchen, call him. Maybe he'll dedicate that to our ministry. We won't sell it. We'll just put it back here and look at it. But see, it's taken a lifetime for you to become what you are, little pearl. Now it's a time for placement. He's going to put you in a crown. He's going to put you in a ring. He's going to put you in a bracelet. He's going to put you in a necklace. I don't know where the setting is, but cheer up, saints. It's getting worse. <laughs> but the bad part's over. You, you actually become the pearl of great price. And, and notice Jesus uses the imagery. He says, when I found you, I found something so amazing that I sold everything I've ever had, collecting pearls my entire life, just to have you. This has got to be some pearl. You know. Could you just go sell everything? What do you mean sell everything? Sell everything. I have to have this. And right now he's bringing his pearls up. <sighs> Their work is curiously wrought in the hidden parts of the earth away from the eyes of men and women. It's been a sacred work, the development of the pearl that you've become. Too sacred to be put on public display for you to be embarrassed. Aren't you glad that he's imploded most of your bombs in the bomb squad unit and not allowed everybody in the world to see what you processed? I'll cover that with night care. Oh, you covered that, Greg, for 35 years. And it's just barely covered. It's like, I'm in no rush. I'm ready when I'm ready, and if I'm never ready, it's okay. Every time I'm in the airplane, I always think, I can't crash because God has a destiny for my life, but what if the destiny is? I already did my destiny, and I have to die right now so that enough people will come to the memorial service. We all think every, I, I've got every base covered, possibly, and I still get on the plane and go to Rome terrified the entire time while the atheist next to me is <laughs> out the whole time woke up in more unbelief than he went to sleep in and i'm just haven't slept a wink you know pastor are you all right my attorney once told me jim sturdy said you know why don't you act like you believe in this god you talk about all the time 
Objection, Your Honor. By the way, Your Honor looks extraordinarily attractive in that robe today. <laughs> in conclusion, <laughs> he's lying on Christmas. <laughs> Holy One, we thank you so much. Pearl maker. Pearl diver, you dived from eternity into time and you dived all the way down and you took all the pain and all the anguish and all the shame and, cre and created in your sacrifice pearls so big that they make 12 gates 1,500 miles tall. The very access to the New Jerusalem created through single individual pearls created through such agony and anguish that we can never, for all eternity, praise you enough. Thank you, Holy One. Thank you for every wounding. Thank you for every cut on the inner part of our shell. Thank you, Lord, for us being able to choose to put in care and mercy and grace. The, the oyster... The pearl is the oyster's answer to what hurt it. What's yours? Father, we thank you that we are going to present pearls, our answer to what cut us unto death. And you get all the glory, Lord. Put us any placement you want. We'll be in your pocket or we'll be in a ring or we'll be anywhere you place us. Visible to no one, visible to one, visible to the world. Whatever you choose, God, make your placement in our time now. Thank you for all the years, Lord. God never wastes a hurt. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I thank you for my precious lambs, Lord, here today, your precious daughters, Lord. Thank you for the beautification that you've done in and through their years of covering the hard things with mother of pearl, with mercy, with forgiveness, with kindness. Thank you, Jesus. Bless your daughters, Lord, with a Christmas blessing that would exceed their expectations, Lord. And for those, Lord, that have been in Narnia where it's always winter and never Christmas. Lord, for your precious daughters where it's always winter and never Christmas. Father, Christmas was held out for a hundred years, but he has a hundred years' worth of gifts that he's bringing in this year. There's a hundred years' worth of presents with your name on them, handmade for you, not re-gifted, handmade for you, and they're coming in. Father, for your sons that have been so faithful, Lord, and all they seem to do is cover hard things with Mother of Pearl, Lord. Thank you that there is a Christmas coming this year, not just winter. And we thank you for the delight we celebrate in advance, the joy of our salvation restored by you. And that we can play with you for eternity starting now in time, God. 
Merry Christmas, Lamb. Merry Christmas, men and women of God. We bless you. We honor you. We thank you for your faithfulness to God. Thank you for serving him no matter what, no matter where. It's going to be worth it. Good things come to those who wait. (laughs) The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift his countenance unto you and give you peace. Amen. God bless you. David has the table of the Lord. And what a beautiful thing. We can make this a point of contact. All you pearl makers, God bless you. Welcome, everybody. What a beautiful word from Pastor Craig. Wow. May your Christmas be blessed. As you get your elements together, the table of the Lord has special significance for me. You know, when we're in the body of Christ, it's good to pray for each other, support each other, tell each other what's going on so that, you know, we can stand together in faith. Well, this last week, I got diagnosed with a second type of cancer. So I've got prostate cancer and I've got blood cancer. And it's, you know, it's crazy. But, you know, it's the enemy. The enemy's trying to get me to shut up. I'm not going to. He's trying to get me to stop worshiping and stop supporting Bethel. I'm not going to. And the Lord gave me this word this week. It's a very simple word, but boy, is it profound. Jesus speaks it in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, 32. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And what I took from that for this week is that, you know what, the doctor's report, that might be a fact, but it's not the truth. I believe God's word that Jesus allowed his body to be broken so that mine would be healed. That's the truth I'm setting my hopes on. And so let's celebrate right now that word. Let's break the bread. Let's thank Jesus for his sacrifice and let's partake. Be free. Be free from fear and worries. You're not being punished. You're not being judged because Jesus took all of that on the cross. There is not one sin that you've ever committed or that you will ever commit that Jesus didn't pay for. How about that for a Christmas present? Let's lift up the the blood of Jesus and thank him that he's cleansed us from all sin. And let's partake. And I'm so thankful for this house of worship. Thank you for joining us today, those that are watching on the internet, those that are here today. Thank you so much for praying for us, sending in your offerings. We can't do this without everybody participating. And I want to thank you for that because it's a blessing to me. It's a blessing for all those who hear the word of God that comes out of the house of Bethel. Special blessing on all of you this Christmas season And upon Pastor Craig and his family, have the joy of the Lord in your heart 
as I do. Let's stand on his word. He is the truth, and he's the one that has set us free. Amen. Lord, we thank you for the servant of the Lord. We thank you for your son. We thank you for his life. We thank you for his constant burning and shining light of testimony everywhere he goes in his home. You've transformed his wife. You've transformed his band. You've transformed everyone. He can't even see the blazes and the forest fires he starts by walking in a room. He can't see flying in a plane where he starts fires and drives demons out of their place. We side with him, we stand with him, that he is a burning and shining light, and we thank you, God. We thank you, Lord. He's made himself indispensable to your work. <laughs> He's indispensable in this house, in this world. Thank you, Jesus. Habakkuk 2.4 said, I've heard what the devil said, I've heard what the people say, now I'm going to go to my tower and hear what the Lord says. We're going to hear your report. We hope today's message has been a blessing to you. And if it has, please visit our website at drcraigjohnson.org. There you can find additional messages of encouragement. And if our ministry has been a blessing to you, please consider us in your ministry giving, as we depend solely on the financial assistance of our listeners like yourself. Also, please feel free to send any personal prayer requests. You can find us online at drcraigjohnson.org. God bless you.